Indigos, and welcome back to Waking Up With Zen. Your homework last week was to look for and find the perfect answers that fit into each element of your soul's compass. Name, energy, love, tribe, outcome, and occupation. If you don't have them all figured out yet, no worries. Just keep looking. Half of the enlightenment process is simply keep going. Don't stop. You're almost there. Keep going. Don't stop. You're almost there. (laughs) And even if you don't have the answers, that's not a problem either, right? Because we've learned the universe speaks emotions, and you've got your emotions. Keep your vibrations up, and they throw the universe positive emotions, and it will catch them and throw back positive experiences. Doesn't matter if you don't have the right words, as long as you've got the right vibes. But how can you keep up those vibes in a world of negativity? Well, that's what the first couple of episodes were about, because we discovered the container determines the creation. If the container does not support the creation, it doesn't matter what you're trying to create, it will fail. The same way an orchid will fail on the ocean floor, an octopus will fail in the spider's web, and a redwood will fail in a flower pot. So when we're growing up, the creation we wanted to be was not fully supported by our container, simply because it's not your house, not your rules. Plus, the stats of broken homes, work satisfaction, and the American education system guarantees the individual will not succeed at being themselves, but will succeed at being what someone else wants them to be. The biggest difference between conformity and establishment is your happiness. So that's why in the first couple of episodes we learned about our esoteric reality, which we discovered is made up of the three questions that determine the container. Where are we? What are we? And why are we? I've been expressing that the ultimate answers to these questions are, we are in heaven. We are living gods. And we are here to create a personal paradise for our mind and body to exist for the duration of our time here on earth. And today, on Waking Up With Zen, I will be reinforcing the same truth that the container determines the creation by showing you why our answers to the container matter so much. Our belief about the container we exist will have five major effects on us. We can remember them by this acronym, PRIME. The prime effects of belief are perspective, responsibility, intention, motivation, and expectation. Our beliefs, or our committed answers, affect how we see life, our perspective, what roles we take on, responsibility, what we're trying to create, intention, why we would bother, motivation, and what we actually think will happen, expectation. In episode three, we discovered in the flow of manifestation that our mind, Eve, is called the mother of all living, meaning that, like the Yoroboros shows, our head is the beginning of all that we experience in our lives. And ultimately, our head is our end, because our head answers all those questions that the universe throws at us, thereby determining what we experience. 
By changing your emotions, you can change your day to day. By changing your thoughts, you can change your year to year. But by changing your container, you could change the entire quality of your life. Because the container determines the creation and the creator determines the container. And today, we will see how the container affected Cain and Abel and their whole lineage and put into perspective once again how our thoughts create the container and essentially our entire lives today on Waking Up With Zen. If this world allows both the enlightened and the victim to exist, what is it that really makes anyone different? What is the one thing that stops us from being enlightened? It's the answers we choose to hold on to. Where do our answers come from? Our perspectives. Depending on where we're at and what we can see will determine what we will aim for. How we answer the universe's questions that arise in our day-to-day -day all depends on how we see life in that moment. What if you woke up late? The fight or flight kick in, thinking about getting written up, thinking about losing money, missing a client. Now you're not able to focus on making sure your socks match or that you missed a spot while shaving and the cherries and the blueberries are flying up on your car as you look down and realize that you're going 73 in a 55. How do you think you're going to respond to the rest of your world for the rest of your day? <laughs> Depending on how you see life will determine how it unfolds. When we were children, we were shown how we should look at life. Our parents encouraged and enforced their perspective onto us and made us hold on to them, even if we didn't like those answers. No matter how dark that childhood container, we still chose the happiest answers that our environment would allow us to have. We were excited when we were able to have any happiness that was our own, no matter how small or insignificant it was to anyone else. We then simply got used to those answers available to us. Sometimes we were made to hold on to those answers through kicking and screaming and tantrums. But we changed. We conformed to our surroundings. We became a manufactured version of ourselves. When we went outside the house to a public container, school maybe, we would keep exhibiting those same behaviors we did at home around those new people. Sometimes our household behaviors meshed with the public's, sometimes they didn't. <laughs> this 18-year experience is what caused our life to start off the way it did. We were held to a way of living that was possible, just not ideal. And it solidified this manufactured version of ourselves. Because now you've, you have friends that respond in kind to your energy, a place for you in the lineup, and you were still able to find happiness even in the midst, even in the, their messed up version of yourself. The thing is, is this manufactured ego only sees life from a worthless, crappy, and subordinate, or an inflated, righteous, and dominating perspective, where we continually keep looking outside ourselves for answers to the questions that can only come from inside us to achieve what it is we truly want. But we've never been taught how to be independent, intuitive, 
are genuine. We've been taught how to be dependent, robotic, and fake. Be this name, be this way, and live this way because that is all this disgusting place offers. A lot of our childhoods consisted of sit down, shut up, and don't move. And then suddenly at 18, it's stand up, speak up, get out. Now what? At the end of chapter 3, we are told to till the ground, 323. Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every which way to keep the way of the tree of life. And remember, Adam is a singular individual which is made up of multiple parts. The man, the body, was made from the dust, and the woman was taken from the body and is of the body, which is how Eve, your mind, came to be inside your body. This is why Eve is the mother of all living, because our mind creates the world around us by thinking, believing life is a certain way. This way of being and becoming, the Ouroboros, <laughs> is how we get Cain and Abel. These are the manufactured versions of ourselves that are within us. Cain was first and means something made, spear, possessed, or possession. Usually the first thing we try to do is to make ourselves, right? We try to become what we're told. That is the first half of our life. Abel was second and means breath, to exhale, vapor. After you've done some things in life, you realize there might actually be something more to life than what mom and dad have offered you. But you're exhausted and weak because you've been being something else for someone else. Cain was a good, obedient child, and he followed in his parents' footsteps and became a farmer. Abel, on the other hand, was a keeper of sheep and was using animals for meat, which goes against chapter 1, right? 129. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. But we discover that Abel has brought the first of his flock, and the Lord has respect for him and his offering. How in the hell? And then, to top it off, the Lord has no respect for Cain's offering. Eh, it's alright. Even like that sort of thing. And so Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. What do you think happens next? And then, after the awards ceremony at the after party, Cain is talking with Abel, confronting him about his creative efforts in a passively aggressive way. Think it's cool to slaughter little innocent lambs? Do you think you're some kind of badass because you beat up on defenseless animals? Dude. There you go again, with that constant sighing. Do you even like your life? Are you really that bored with life that you can't muster up some energy? Are you, Abel? Huh? I've worked really hard for what I brought today, and you're not taking it away from me again. 
Suddenly, Kane's rage takes over, and he takes out Abel in the study with the candlestick. It's a big party mansion, so there are a lot of rooms and secret passageways and all that. Suddenly, God walks in from the bookshelf door when Kane's having a moment of catharsis, and God says, Oh, my child, what have you done? You don't want to play pitch and catch with death. The universe is going to win. And suddenly, Kane realizes the universe is going to be sending death back at him in the future. Now, when thou tillest the ground, it will not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. And Cain says, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And then God turns towards the audience and says, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord God set a mark upon Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And after that, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, his higher self, and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Where do you think the land of Nod is? Perhaps a place of depression, where you feel lack and worthlessness all the time. It's not a murder per se, but Cain kind of stopped living for himself. And now, he's farther away from himself. killed someone, and then he went to hide his face and build it a city, and then named the city after his son, Enoch, whose name means dedicated or trained, which is another version of Cain throwing on even more responsibility. Our perspectives determine our responsibility and what we take care of. Enoch wasn't a bad guy. He did well for himself, seeing as his dad was a murderer, but we're still falling farther away from the glory of God. By an objective and collective view of the container and the law of attraction, all these people now living in a city with Cain also don't believe in heaven or themselves. Like attracts like. Cain's reflection that the universe is throwing back at him is now showing up within hundreds of people surrounding him. Everyone is trying to make up for their parents' lack, living in the land of Nod. But if we went back through, we'd find Cain has no lack. Not really. If we went back and looked at where he got off track first, he would see he wasn't in heaven, and therefore unable to see his own potential. Then it became his belief he wasn't valued or appreciated by the world, and he thought he'd kill the competition. But soon realized Abel had nothing to do with his own happiness. Now Abel has to go beat himself up for the rest of his life and then believe that anything that comes from him is also just as evil. And odds are that thing will do something even worse and continue to compound the evils until we are no longer human. Let's 
like Cain, many of us tend to carry our trained beliefs with us out into the real world, determining our prime elements of our life. There we make choice after choice, doing what we think society and our parents want us to do because we want to make them happy, which is separation from ourselves and is also known as sin. 4.6, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thou continence fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. When this happens, we focus solely on the praise and smiles from those people who we unconsciously put in authority over us. And only if they are happy will we allow ourselves to be happy. So as soon as they frown, you're screwed. What if they want to just be an ass and say, oh, I don't like it. Now you're unhappy because they're not happy. But in all reality, you're just making yourself unhappy. Not because you really have a reason to be unhappy. You did all of your actions to try and make that person happy. Remember, I said everything comes from love. But instead of making you happy and taking your happiness with you, you as God created and made a reason to be unhappy. First, you put someone over you. Then, you put your happiness in their hands. And now... You think you can only get happiness, even a little bit of it, when they allow you to have it. Because you're always right. You made a right way to be for yourself. You followed it and then experienced the outcome. All you have to do is stop putting someone else's taste buds over your own. Stop putting someone else's thoughts above your own. And stop feeling bad about your life because it was you who chose it. And it is only you who can make it wonderful. You took a passenger seat to your life when you were little. And you just got used to it. Now you just need to kick that other person out of your car and drive yourself. Failures, flaws, and all. Until you get things under control like the way you wanted to do when you were a child. But you were never allowed because you weren't big enough, old enough, or smart enough. But now... You are. Go live a wonderful life. These beliefs are what lead us into an external temptation and an internal need to please the world, society, or our parents. When this happens, we create a gap between our heart and soul. This gap or separation is the real sin that kills you. This in turn creates a haphazard container because you're trying to put everyone else's ideas about what looks good into your personal container or garden. Unfortunately, no matter how atrocious their suggestions are, you are the one who ultimately puts them in there. We found that out last week when I was screaming at the sky as if something, something out there was what made me have an internal experience. At first, you may feel like you're honoring your parents or your heritage. But in all reality, it's slowly killing you. You're not supposed to live with pain or restriction. But we're told it's normal. And so we go, oh, okay. And the gates slam shut. And you just made a mountain you can't move.
For example, if you knew your mother just loved daffodils, but you hated them, however, because you are a good child, you decide to plant daffodils in your garden, obviously you're only planting them to please her and not yourself. Now, because you did this, the only time you ever feel good about those stupid daffodils is when she comes over and praises you for having them. But what, if, what happens if she comes over and says nothing? What happens when she expects them to be there? Now you have to live with them, but you are no longer getting the love or admiration you originally thought you would receive. Or what happens when you take them out and she comes over and notices them missing? Uh-oh, now you're in trouble. What if she says you don't love her anymore? She may try and convince you that a good child does what a mother says. Now you're against her and society. Suddenly it doesn't matter that it's your garden because she believes your well-being is determined by her approval and society's approval. What do you do then? What is the mark of Cain? The mark of Cain is not a race of people, it's a type of person. The mark of Cain is an outer observation of a person who can't find happiness because they believe they are bad and are trying to please external authorities. Those who are a slave to other men and hate what they're doing in their life all have the mark of Cain upon them. People you see on the street who are sick and riddled with disease. People who are stressed all the time and hate their job also have the mark of Cain. Anyone who holds on to the belief that they are not their own master and that they can't be happy while alive has the mark of Cain. Now, imagine if that person made a baby. <laughs> this is reiterating 316. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow... Thou shalt bring forth children. Adam's not happy, makes Cain. Cain's not happy, it makes Enoch. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his own son, Enoch. And Cain lived through the success of his children and grandchildren because he was a loser who killed his brother out of jealousy. When you don't believe that you can have your own happiness, you will make something else that maybe could. And so we sacrifice ourselves for our children, just like Cain, building an entire city, not for him, but for his child. And what does Enoch learn? To live for someone else. You're not allowed to be happy. We're from the Cain family. Remember the daffodils that your mother liked? Imagine being the child of the man with the daffodils to please his mother. Mm -hmm. As a child, we learn through the observation of our parents' actions and behaviors. What happens right before Grandma gets there? We de-weed the garden around the daffodils so they look nicer. We pull off dead petals so they look better. And maybe even mess up something you personally love so she thinks you love her daffodils more than you do yourself. But what if you didn't weed the garden around the daffodils well enough because mom didn't give him praise? Dad yells when grandma leaves. 
I'm sure you would hear dad throughout the weeks before she gets there, the days before she gets there, complaining about the stupid daffodils. I have to take care of them. Stupid. (laughs) And to get dad to like you, you do the same thing. The interesting thing about the next couple of verses and almost all of what chapter 5 talks about is the passing down of evil through the generations from parent to child. You can literally watch as families get farther and farther away from their godly nature. It's like the story of the holiday ham. One day, a mom is teaching her daughter how to cook their signature family holiday ham. The daughter watches intently as the mother preheats the oven to just the right temperature, mixes the ingredients to make the special glaze, and once it is ready, Mom takes the knife and cuts the ends off the ham to where the ham was almost half of its original size. The mother drizzles on the glaze and puts it in the oven with a big grin. And that's how you make our family's special holiday ham. As the daughter is looking at the ham, she asks, Why do you cut the ends off the ham? The mother replied, I'm not sure. That's the way my mother always did it. The daughter was curious, so she goes and asks her grandma. Grandma, why did you cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the oven? I'm not sure. That's the way my mother always did it. The daughter goes to her great-grandmother napping in her rocking chair. Great-grandma, great-grandma. Huh, huh? Great-grandma. Oh, hi, sweetie. Why do we cut the ends off the holiday ham? When I was your mother's age, our oven was so small, you could hardly fit a loaf of bread in it. So I had to cut the ends off the ham so it fit inside. When we don't question where we come from, and we don't study our own history, we're destined to repeat it, and it will oftentimes get worse. Four eighteen, And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujal, and Mahujal begat Methusiel, and Methusiel begat Lemage. Now, So Enoch means dedicated or trained, and he begat Irad and named his child Fast or Rapid. And I'm guessing that Irad tanked here a little bit and tried to make up for it and named his child Mahujal, who, or who, uh, one who is smitten of God. Mahujal going to try and better his father and go with Methusiel, who is of God. Now, I don't know exactly what happened to Methusiel, but it must have went straight to the toilet because he begets Lemich, meaning poor made low. I, I mean, what kind of dad do you have to be to name your child Outhouse? Poor made low? Thanks, Dad. But it's not surprising seeing how he treats his wives. Four 
19. And Lemich took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zila. If we jump ahead a little bit, he has a great speech. Imagine this as the wedding speech from the groom to his wives. 4.23 And Lemich said unto his wives, Ada, Zila, hear my voice, ye wives of Lemich. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lemich, seventy and sevenfold, I will love you with my fist, Muddletov. So, Lemich, in all of his loving wisdom, takes on two minds. One is called Ornament, and the other is called Shadow. Ada was the favorite, if you couldn't tell, while Zyla hides off in the shadows, or is always in the shadows of the ornament. This is also reflective of typical parents who say they love their children equally. One just happens to be better than the other one. Once again, it is our belief that creates our world. So if you believe that you will have only one child that you will like, only one child will please you. Now, Zyla seems to live a little bit like Cinderella, and she looks at life differently than Ada, who is adored and well-liked by everyone. Now, because of Zyla's childhood, she named her children Tubal-Cain and Nama. Tubal-Cain, yeah, gotta bring in great-great-grandpa again, which means teacher or artifice of brass and iron. And Nama means a good-natured person, meeting and mixing easily. And this is what Zyla created for her children. Whereas Ada named her children to still live in the shadows, in the background of her own spotlight, because she believed she was supposed to be adored by everyone. Daddy did. Uh. So, one of Ada's children lives in a tent with cattle, and the other child played background music as entertainment to her admiration parties. 420. And Ada bared Jobble. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all, such as handle the harp and organ. And this is the end of the line for Cain's lineage. Abel has none. So, on to the next kid. Four twenty-five. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. If you've come to settle for something that is not your fullest potential as a living God, you are still living in sin and separation. You spent so long believing you can't have love in your life and that you're willing to take the abuse and demands from another person just to have a little bit of love. Now you're bitter, resentful, and sad. Of course, you might have moments of satisfaction getting something out of life, even though it didn't even quench your thirst. You're still settling for what you have because you were never taught that you could have heaven on earth. And once you believe you have to settle in life, you will push onto your children an even worse fate. 426, and to Seth, to him, also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men 
to call upon the name of the Lord. Look at the tragedy about to befall the world of men. Men have reached a point where they do not consider themselves capable of becoming living gods anymore. Enos means mortal man. And of course, someone who doesn't believe in their own ability as God will now have to call upon the name of the Lord because they are so far removed from the source of their own happiness. They are no longer going within to find the tree of life, but looking outside themselves for answers to what is righteous and good. They believe God is no longer infinite or eternal, and they see God as something separate from themselves. Sound familiar? Episode two, where I stress you are God, and you are part of the greater whole, and only when you see it will you be able to merge back into your enlightened self. Now, Seth, the settler, begets Enos, which we know means mortal man. Now, life's just gotten bad for everybody. Enos begets Canaan. This meaning is so close to Cain. Possessor or purchaser. Love the consumers. But he, like his great, great, great uncle Cain, his lineage, he named his child Mahalalel, meaning blessed by God trying to get the family back on track, I guess. But then Mahalalel must be extremely arrogant because he then names his child Jared, which means down to earth or rose. Mahalalel, blessed by God in a world of Enos, mortal men. I bet everybody hated him anyway. But now Jared, on the other hand, he also digs in his family tree like Canaan and names his child Enoch, which we already know means dedicated or trained. Now, I think Enoch was dyslexic because he spells Methuselah wrong on the birth certificate, calling his son Methuselah instead of Methuselah, which means to send death. He literally called his son Methuselah to send death. Okay, there's a slight offshoot here. Enoch bails on his kids. OMG, right? 522, and Enoch walks with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch leaves his family to go walk with God. This is essentially the Buddha path. You give up completely who you are, you are no longer you anymore. However, he bails on his family and then names his kid sent to death. Ugh. Obviously, Methuselah is going to be chewed up now, and he names his kid Lemich. Poor made low. <laughs> However, whether Lemich's grandparents really got to him, or he just had a vision one night, this Lemich is not nearly as crazy as Uncle Lemich with his two wives. This Lemich, under Seth, calls his child Noah, which means comfort and peace. Long lived. 528. And Lemich lived 180 and two years, and he begot a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And he does. But that's a story in and of itself. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham. Japheth. Sham means son. Ham means chief, head, or hot. 
and Japheth means to expand or have ample room. Noah's children were light, warmth, and authority, and space with possible expansion, which would be a great environment to try and create a paradise with peace and comfort. Wouldn't you think? Now, if you found that you settled for things that are not your highest potential, don't worry. There's a way to get back to the garden to manifest your paradise on earth. All is not lost. All you have to do is build a ginormous ark with a screwdriver and some nails, brush up on your zookeeping skills, and be willing to kill everyone in the world. Done. Even before we leave our parents' house, we're already making choices in our lives about what goals will be later on and realize that our desires that you had when you were a child will be some of the closest to your divine purpose than at any other time in your life. This is because you know all the things you're going to accomplish in this life, and you haven't been fed all those limiting beliefs about what society will and won't let you do. But the older we get, the more we lose sight of what we wanted to do from our younger, more innocent perspective. Say you realize when you were a child you wanted to be an artist who paints pictures. But your parents didn't see it as a lucrative career. They believed you wouldn't be successful or make enough money to survive, and you'd end up in the gutter, dead somewhere, with no food or shelter. So you go, like they wanted, through high school, repressing your artistic desires, and you even commit to a business college to make them happy. There, you end up wasting four years of your life working towards something you don't really want. You finally graduate, and we're expecting some great admiration for your efforts. Unfortunately, all you get is a nice pat on the back and a smile. You had envisioned so much more, but it seems the slap on the back was all you got for your sacrificial work. During your business career, as you sift out a couple of moments of happiness from your accomplishments, but all the negative moments greatly outweighs those blissful ones. I mean, you never really wanted to be a businessman in the first place, right? But you kept thinking, hoping, praying, wishing that maybe if I'm the best at whatever it is they want me to be, then my authorities will appreciate what I've done and then they'll give me permission to do what I really want because I've proven myself to them. So you start a business that you really don't care about, drag your body through the days and slowly waste away a great portion of your love, energy and life until one day you finally had enough. You realize you've never felt the love of the cherubim next to the tree of life, and you're tired of it. You've been cut and left burned, half dead from enduring the flaming sword for your years. It's burning inside you as hell, and you can't stand it anymore. This burning makes you hate the world around you and the people you see every day. You're jealous of all those other artists out there living their dream, and you're bitter and resentful and hurt because you're not allowed to do what you want. You blame others because you're not happy. Blame yourself for listening to people outside you. And you wish the world would just blow away just so you wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. By this time, years have passed you by and you're in your mid-40s realizing that you haven't been doing what you wanted, ever. Now you go out, buy a sports car, get divorced, buy a new bachelor pad and find the youngest girl who will sit in the passenger seat next to you. Or if you're a woman, you do all the above. Become a cougar, prowling the bars at night for young men. Then you wake up after your hangover and now you're 60. You finally ask yourself, how did it all come to this? You roll out of bed, open your window, and 
Genesis 6-5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now you want to get back to being that happy-go-lucky kid who actually loved life. Unfortunately, your youth is wasted, and old age has conquered you, and now you're lost and faded. Only when you get to this point do people typically start trying to figure out their own life. They wait and wait until they're all used up and their body is decayed and their joy of life is gone. Only on their deathbed, after being fed up with everything, do they finally start searching for their tree of life that is regrettably withered and rotted. How do I get back to the garden that God promised? Where is this tree of life? I deserved a better life than the one I was given. What did I do to deserve this? You didn't do anything to deserve it. You did everything to keep yourself from being happy. The truth is, you're already worthy of a divinely inspired life. However, you've believed you needed saved by some outside force. You believed you needed to do something to be worthy of goodness, of godliness, of blissfulness. The fact of the matter is, you've always been worthy of this love and joy. It's yours for the taking, but you're just not taking. You hold yourself away from your love because you're told this life is all about suffering. You're told that it's a necessary evil in order to get to a better place when you die. You take on the belief you should not be joyful about your own existence until you die. For years, we had, we've believed society and our authorities had the answers we were looking for, but realize in the end, we were only living someone else's dream. When you die, you realize you've always been your own master, but now you're dead, and you have to start all over again. It's better late than never, I guess. But life should never have to get to this point. Life, more specifically, your life, is supposed to be a joyous thing that is beautiful and wondrous. You don't have to wait for death to get heaven. It is here now, and only you can choose to take advantage of it. Genesis 1.8, and God called the firmament heaven in the evening and the morning were the second day. The only way to return to your original childlike state where you used to see this world as heaven is to be willing to give up everything you've been told you should be and everything you need to be by the world of men. You have to give up all authorities and become the great I am. You have to give up someone else's ideas about what happiness should be because obviously it's not working out for you. Hopefully you've realized now that life is all about perspective. But perspective is how people are somehow not affected by the economy in times of depression. Or how people can magically focus on the good in people when others can't see it. And see it themselves. The story is also about perspective. From Noah's point of view, the world was horrible. And he needed a way to change what he saw. The enlightened ego, or ark, as we'll discover, is like your seed to paradise. Like a seed, it contains all that you ever wanted to do, be, have, and become in this life. This seed is personally designed by you, so it will reflect everything that means joy, abundance, and well-being to you. As the flood process is different for all of us, depending on where we're at and trying to get to, the time frame is kind of generic for the flood. However, it takes about a year to do all the work and the setup work. 
And then once you begin, for 40 days, emotional energy will overwhelm you. The flood or your emotions. Do you know what it's like to separate yourself from everybody you've ever known? I guarantee you, you will cry. You will weep like a little baby. After the emotional flood, it gets easier for the next 150 days or so because now you're going to try to establish your thoughts and habits in the midst of all this emotional energy that surrounds you because, right, the water was still up and he has to just float around on the ark and hang out. But it'll be less overwhelming than it was the first 40 days. And then after time goes by, you'll then watch the water recede and the tops of the mountains will be seen about 10 months in after you've been holding on to your enlightened ego. And this is the beginning of your new heaven. And it's literally at hand. And once the waters recede, and it's close to time, you'll release two egos, two birds, a raven and a dove. Now, the raven is your manufactured ego. It is the part of you that will never come back once you get that far in. However, your dove, the enlightened ego, who you're trying to become, she'll take some time to become strong and stand on her own. And so you'll send your enlightened ego out into the world a couple of times, and in doing so, she'll get stronger, and then you'll get stronger being you. And eventually, you'll release the dove for a final time, and you'll finally be free. And finally, you. In the story, it tells us that Noah builds his 300-cubit-long ark that's also 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. He's instructed to gather beasts and birds of every kind and bring them two by two onto the ark, along with enough food and supplies to last until the waters recede. Not only that, but he has to wish death upon every being on earth except for himself, his closest family, and the animals he believes that are clean. 617. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Story seems a bit evil villain, doesn't it? I mean, when you take it from a literal perspective. And then at the very end, God throws them out rainbows and blessings. It's kind of weird, isn't it? However, when you realize that the story is for the individual and their personal world, it makes a little more sense. 6-8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When we're upset, we also want someone else to side with us and our pain. We want someone else to agree that these other people are bad and deserve punishment. More specifically, we want God, the Lord God, and any other God or powerful authority to side with us. So those other people have to change. We are taught that we're not worthy of joy, abundance, and well-being because we were born sinners and we will never get back to being happy. This is not true because you started out perfect in every way. As you spent time with other humans, however, not living gods, your mind became skewed and you stopped seeing this living world as something wonderful. Since you were with other humans who fed you this fruit, which caused your mind to believe in an absolute right and wrong and a belief that this world is evil, it crept into your life. 
And society has become drenched with mortal men now who want you to eat this fruit as well and will do anything to tell you it's the best thing ever. Unfortunately, this keeps you from allowing the great things into your life. Even though the soul knows it's absurd, the mind is what ultimately creates our reality. The separation of vision and purpose between the soul and the mind is known as sin. Sin is the separation that kills you because of what the tree of knowledge of good and evil does to you. The pain, suffering, sorrow, thorns, and thistles. You simply want to align your mind's perspective with your soul's. The soul knows you came here to manifest paradise on earth. If you weren't ready to achieve that outcome, you wouldn't have been allowed to become a human being, God, in the first place. Now, we're going to go into gopher symbolism and or medicine. 614. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Sometimes it's called animal medicine by the shamans. Every animal exhibits traits and qualities that, when they show up in our worlds, can help us in our lives if we channel, follow, or act like the animal who has come into our lives. The interesting thing is, is that gophers have strong symbolism. Gophers are said to be the keepers of life's secrets. Interesting that this specific animal would be helping Noah get back to alignment with himself. Gophers are also masters of as above, so below. Not only is this very prevalent in numerous religions all over the world, but this is also another meaning of the Ouroboros, right? Your head is your end. What you envision will become reality. If you change this in this moment, you change all the decisions from here on out. You affect everything by changing your mind. The ark is symbolic for life, for a life Noah wants to have. When Noah brings all the things he wants with him, it will then be with him when he reaches paradise. He's being right now what he wants to be in the future. That which is likened to itself is drawn. Now the gophers also live in underground tunnels that intersect and connect, keeping them safe for extended periods of time. But whether life is above ground or below, or even in the water sometimes, they have a series of tunnels that demonstrate how everything is connected, even though it may be hidden from our physical eyes. This is also what Noah will be doing as he goes within and lives on the ark for an extended period of time. This is the transformational time period as all the connected pieces are reassembling for Noah in his future. Also, gophers are also great diggers and know how to dig and uncover hidden truths and meanings, and they share this gift as medicine. And we have to dig into our own past to discover what it is we were always meant to be, to uncover our gold mine that's been buried underneath someone else's clothes that we're wearing. Now, gophers have poor eyesight, mainly because they spend a lot of time underground and in the dark, but don't use your eyes as much. So like Noah, he needs to use more of his feelings and vibrational awarenesses to tell if this or that will bring him happiness. This is why the gophers are very adept at feeling vibrations in the ground. Mm -hmm. You'll want to practice paying attention to those subtle energies as well during this whole process. 
The first thing Noah is instructed to do is to create an ark made of gopher wood. He is given exact dimensions and instructed to pitch it within and pitch it without, which is a sealant. It means to seal or enclose the inside of the ark and the outside to make it completely impermeable. Symbolic that this means we must look within and outside ourselves to create the ark that will carry us to heaven and then put everything in there and seal it up. And this is the same thing that Noah is doing. And you'll also be making this new container as a direct reflection of the future you want to have. 616. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower second, and third stories shalt thou make it. The reason he needs a window is the same reason you need a soul's compass. The window is so you can see where you're going. Not exactly like he's steering the ark, but he can envision what he's going to experience in the future. This is what your soul's compass is like, too. It's an ideal version, an image of you in your heavenly paradise. Now, the door is like a filter. If it fits, it ships. Meaning, if it makes you happy, it's clean. If it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Get it out of there. Now, the three levels spoken of are your soul, mind, and body. The soul's compass, the mind's map, and the body's path. Each area will have its own desires and goals, so you must align them all and take them all into account to, to see your whole self. 618. But with thee I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. The promise is that all these things you find wicked, disgusting, and cruel about the world will end. And when the flood is over, you will once again establish your individual covenant with God and become that which is likened to itself. Anything that you ever wanted to fit will fit in this space, in this ark. There is no limit to what you can take, but it must fit through that door in order to be part of your soul, your mind, or your body's desire to have it. 619. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee, and they shall be male and female. We talked earlier about the divine masculine and feminine, and how they gave birth to creation, right? And the reason Noah was told to take two by two is to make sure that not only what you do take looks good, but also feels good as well. The masculine tends to be very visual, and the feminine is more empathetic. Empathetic, excuse me. So when you're gathering things for your ark, make sure that not only do they look attractive, appealing to you, but make sure they also feel good to you as well. Remember, this is the rest of your life we're talking about here. And 7-4. For yet seven days I will cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Now the story implies Noah only had seven days to construct this ark. Of course, this would be physically impossible to create an ark 450,000 cubits big and gather all the animals two by two in seven days. And the reason it seems Noah only has seven days to complete this task is to create an urgency within him to get it done now. If you have a couple of years, you'll allow life to get in the way. 
and he wouldn't be able to get to his heaven. And things will happen and make, you'll make excuses and continue to hate your life. But by creating urgency around this process, you have seven days from now. You better go now, now, now. The house is on fire. Now, 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 now. And you create a stronger motivation to get it done. 7-6. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters was upon the earth. The answer here, you're never too old to start doing what you want. They, 714, they and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort came onto the ark. Do you notice that all the things this first for the beast to the birds are after his kind? Meaning that everything he wants that is going into his ark is a direct reflection of himself. Your life is already a reflection of you, but they're the parts of you that you don't really want reflected. The key is to use your feelings as a guide from here on out for the rest of your life. And by focusing on feeling good every moment, every day, every week, every month, every year of your life will achieve your heaven on earth. Life was not meant to be a horrible experience. It was meant to always increase and expand your creations while love bursts forth from within you, happening very rapidly and making you fruitful in this living world. But you must cleanse your old self, your manufactured ego. Become your childlike self again. Trust in your feelings. Endure, and you will, without a doubt, manifest paradise on earth. The cubit. So what is this cubit, anyway? Most believe it to be just a simple, universal measuring tool for distance or space. But the cubit is actually a magical measuring device that doesn't measure space or distance as much as it measures awareness. You remember those little box guys we've been drawing in the last couple of episodes? <laughs> Well, if you pull out a piece of paper with them on it, or you go ahead and draw another one, once again, just draw a simple stick figure, and then draw a little box around it with some space, so the little box guy's kind of like right in the middle of the box with some space around it, and here's the magic. Now, remember the answer to the chicken and the egg, and that they took up three-dimensional space? Do you see where I'm going with this? Now, if you fill in the rest of the square to make it a 3D cube around the person, once you do this, you suddenly change the two-dimensional person to a three-dimensional person. What is the cubit? The cubit is an awareness tool to teach you about the container you see, we bounce from container to container to container all day long. We wake up in our bedroom container, 
travel to the bathroom container to relieve ourselves, walk to the kitchen container to make coffee, we walk to the living room container to sit and enjoy our coffee, leave our home container that housed all those other containers to get into our car container and go to our work container. You could even make the roads per county or township as containers as well because there is someone taking care of them and they, are, they each have a different weather, grade, condition. They are also usually consistent throughout, but that will be determined by those answering the container's questions. Once you get to your work container, there are multiple containers in your work life. There are social containers, food, bars, clubs, stores, malls, etc. Every place and space in time we are in a container, whether it's man-made or natural, we are always contained. Shoot someone out into space as long as they have a container, otherwise they can't exist without one. It's part of the four energetic bodies that make up you. Remove one, the rest will be incapable of working. A cubit is a reflection exercise to make you more aware of yourself and what the other components are in your world. So what is it that we have to do in seven days? Find 450,000 cubits worth of awareness to find all the positive thoughts and all the positive feelings we have about this world. Your bedroom container. What th things are bringing you positive feelings there or positive thoughts? Your bathroom container. What's positive there? Anything negative? Kitchen? Living room? Car? Work? 7-2 Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by the sevens, the male and his female to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. I thought it was supposed to be two by two. Well, this is the reality. You're aiming for two of each, but you'll start off with seven of the good things, and you'll probably bring some unclean things with you, or things that don't truly make you happy. And you'll find that some of the things you want or that you bring with you are reminiscent of your manufactured self and not your enlightened one. So how is it that we can do a cubit? Here's a Taoist saying for you. The perfect man employs his mind as a mirror. It grasps nothing, refuses nothing. It receives, but does not keep. The focus of a cubit exercise is for you to be a sleuth of your own reflection. Many times we ignore the world around us because we believe it's separate from ourselves. Hopefully, from listening to the last couple of episodes, you understand that the world around each of us is simply a reflection of ourselves. The answers we give to the questions given to us by the universe that arise every moment of every day. The world around us is a reflection of our inner thoughts and emotions, which are continuously creating the living world we are personally experiencing. If you can learn to objectively observe the world around you and realize it as a reflection of you, 
you can suddenly know anything you ever wanted to know about yourself. And then you'll be able to change those reflections by simply changing your thoughts about them. After you know who you really are, you can answer the universe with those new answers, thereby changing your reflection. Remember, this is a living world. It's going to take time because it's a garden and it needs to grow. You won't get your ideal career tomorrow, and even if it does come fast, there will still be new habits to learn to maintain this new world of yours. Ever heard of the saying, dress for the job you want, not the job you have? It's just like the law of attraction. Answer the soul's compass, answer its elements with those new answers, even if you're not there yet, and it will eventually stick. However, before we can find those ideal answers, we need to search all the cubits we can find in our lives so we can see all the positive things we want to keep with us in heaven and what things we're going to allow to get washed away by the flood. Homework this week. Start keeping a journal with your cubits in them. What you'll need is a composition notebook. The 88-cent ones are perfect. You can find them at your local dollar store. You can buy three and then reread them later to see how far you've grown and how much more you've already become yourself. Now, I've tried to make this simple to start with. There's a lot I could show you about a single cubit. However, we're going to start with the container, the creators, and the creations. So we're already kind of familiar with these kinds of elements. So the container, I want you to take like an energetic snapshot of the container you're in and record the container and the specifics about the container, such as your home, colon, bathroom, home, colon, living room, home, colon, garage, den, whatever it might be at your home. You could then have car, colon, and then where you are in relevance to the driver. And then where are you location-wise on the road? And then container also career, colon. Are you on site or uh, in a break room or a bathroom, storage closet, warehouse, those things. So, and you just want to make it just simple and short. So keep it simple. Just have date, time, container, and only make the container a couple words. It's just enough to kind of keep a record to like look back on and make a conscious decision to pay attention to those things. And then write down two things you like about the container and two things you'd like to improve upon it. And then just below that, write, how does this container make you feel? There you go. Now, the second part is the creators, or the creator. This is who and what is in the container. So who is in the container? Friends, coworkers. So who are the people in this container? How do you feel about them? How do they make you feel? Are they authorities or subordinates? You can also add animals to the list. Right, since we did the gophers already. And then uh, we started talking about the raven and the dove, and that'll be coming up uh, in a couple weeks. And so you can add animals to the list of creators as well because they have a certain energy that is still a reflection of you. So if you happen to see a groundhog coming up, that's symbolic of you. Not everybody sees a groundhog on that day. Some people don't see any animals at all. 
So you can look up the animal symbolism when it's there. You can look it up online and see what it might be trying to show you or tell you. So in the creator section, write two things you like about the creator and what part of yourself you see in them. And then how do you feel when you're around them? Find an emotion that kind of describes you. And finally, the creation. So just make like at the top container, in the middle write uh, the creators, and then at the bottom write creations. And this is all about what is inside the container. Now write down two things you're drawn to that you can see, and write how you feel about the things you see. Essentially, that's it. However, you have to do that 450,000 times this week. <laughs> Hope you didn't have anything else on your to-do list. Good luck. When I was working towards my own enlightenment, I, I didn't know all this stuff. <laughs> I just spent years of my life constantly meditating and stripping myself down and shedding all those limiting beliefs and masks, being who I thought I should be. I didn't realize how much of my true self I was covering up. It took me years of mental, emotional, and physical work to get rid of and cleanse myself to find myself. But then even when I did, I didn't know where to go after that. I still didn't have a point to my life. And when you reach enlightenment, suddenly you realize there are endless possibilities, depending on which way you go. But finally, after you've given up what your society and culture has given you through the years, and the universe says, congratulations, you can do what you want, you can do anything, and it's all good. You always loved and can do no wrong. Go play. I originally thought the point of enlightenment was just to know the intricacies of the universe, and I'd be all set. However, once you expand to become the universe and you become God, you forget sometimes that you're still human. And, and as a human, you still have a purpose. Yay for you for achieving enlightenment and coming back to balance. Woo! -hoo! But now, now that you know the answers, the point is to own yourself and create who you want to be and exist from this place until the end of your life. After I became privy, to this information, I was guided to the creation story. And the moment I read the opening line, I suddenly realized I needed to create my enlightened ego within my personal paradise on Earth. And I spent the next four years after my awakening to figure out what I needed to do to make it happen. And now I give it to you. You're welcome. <laughs> I can't wait until you can see what I can see. And maybe you see it already. We just need to bring it into focus a little bit more. And as you're Zen-gauged, as you're in this get Zen-gauged state this week, try not to get too overwhelmed with all the containers you'll notice. Just focus on the one you're in and record some info. Move on to the next one. Make the conscious effort to see, and you will. Ask, and it is given. Knock, and it is opened unto you. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to Waking Up With Zen. I'm Zen Katori.
See you next Sunday.